And while you sit down, go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 11, 11th chapter Romans. And, um, you know, this is, uh, so let me say this about that. Romans chapter 11, out of all the pastors in all the churches in all of America who will be preaching out of Romans today, however many that may be, almost none of them will be preaching out of chapter 11. It is really difficult to preach from. Uh, But here's the way I view this, and we've been walking through the book of Romans together, and we've gotten now to what I think is the apex, the, the mountain peak of the book of Romans. I mean, it really is. I know nobody else sees it that way, but really it is. And so I knew that we couldn't slide it. We couldn't, you know, I I was going to have to go full bore, even though we're going to get through the whole chapter today. Now, um, you know, when you read a King James Bible, most King James Bibles are printed in verse-by-verse fashion, and each verse is its own paragraph. You ever notice that? And that is because, you know, since King James is the word of God, it is easier to understand if you take it verse by verse. If you take your Bible verse by verse and just read the words, just look at the words, it's all in the words, bring in other cross-references and stuff, but it's all right there in the words, well then, you know, it's kind of easy to understand. Um, I will even say that that is how you have to love people. That's how you ought to love your spouse. You need to love them verse by verse not chapter at a time. I have a lot of people come into me for counseling, and they'll come in, and they, I mean, they don't want to just lay out the chapter. They want to lay out the whole book. I have to say, well, what about that verse? Well, I, you know, I don't want to focus on the good stuff. I, I want to lay out the book for you of all that they've done. And that, no, you need to kind of love people verse by verse. And you kind of understand the Bible verse by verse, But I did feel like God is having us walk through this book in bigger chunks together this time. It's not my first time preaching through Romans, but this time uh, we're going to go through chapter 11 together. And uh, so let me set the background and let me set the stage for this in Genesis chapter 12. Because the opening book of the Bible claims that the Bible was written to bless you and bless our nation. And I know you don't believe me, but I've been told you believe the Bible. So watch, verse 1, Genesis 12. Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee, and I will make thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing, and, and I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. So here's my thesis for today's study. God blesses nations and individuals based on what they do with God's revelation, which has come to us through Abraham's seed. And so this is a prediction that you can test. Here is is a way you can confirm the Bible's reliability. Right here in Romans chapter 11, Paul now uses Israel to test God's faithfulness to his word. Has God indeed kept his word to bless his people Israel and through them to bless the nations? And could it be that even while the people who originally received God's promises are unfaithful, that God is going to yet remain faithful? 
Well, look at verse 1 of Romans chapter 11. I say then, hath God cast away his people? God forbid. I mean, God began his covenant relationship with humanity through Abraham. They were God's people. Genesis 15, verses 5 and 6. He brought Abram forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven and tell the stars if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. And watch this. Abram believed in the Lord... And the Lord counted it to Abram for righteousness. That's still how you're saved today. You're saved by believing in Jesus. And you don't, you know, it's not your righteousness. It's Christ's righteousness applied to you because you believed in him. So Abraham's descendants developed into the nation of Israel through their patriarch Jacob. And God rescued them from Egypt and God revealed them as his chosen people in the promised land. And generations later, God anointed a young man named David as Israel's king, and God continued to craft unconditional covenants as necessary. Watch, look at Psalm 89, verse 3. I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn, this time not just Abraham, unto David my servant, thy seed will I establish forever and build up thy throne to all generations, Selah. So these promises were taken up, they were reiterated by the prophets, so, and we showed you this last time as a, as a kind of an overview of these three chapters. In Romans 9, we see Paul explain how God chose Israel in the past, gave her all these promises in the past as a preparation for the coming Messiah, Jesus. Then in chapter 10, we saw him show how Israel rejected their Messiah and in the present, they are deceived. Now in chapter 11, I need to know, is God still good for his word? Is God finished with Israel? Will he be able to keep his promises to Abraham, to David, and to the prophets? I mean, will God bring blessing to humanity through the seed of Abraham? Will he solve and save us from the systemic problem of sin and bless us with eternal life from him? I mean, just stop and think about this. The entire history of the world has been shaped by the lives of six Jews. Six Jews, the entire history of the world has been shaped Three theists and three atheists. Moses, Paul, Jesus, Marx, Freud, and Einstein. So, Romans 11, verse 1. For I also, Paul says, am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God hath not cast away his people which he foreknew. Why ye not what the scripture saith of Elias, that's New Testament name of Elijah, how he maketh intercession to God against Israel, saying, Lord, they've killed thy prophets, dig down thine altars, I am left alone, and they seek my life. But what saith the answer of God unto him? I have reserved to myself 7,000 men, a remnant. You don't see them, you don't need to. I know who they are. They're a remnant who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. Even so, Paul says, at this present time also, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And that is important for you to take note of because all sorts of movements today on campuses in our country and even within Christianity want to disassociate you from Israel. 
And yet, this is the proof of God's, the truth of God's word in our world. So let's think about the proof of our Bible as God's word and what God is doing in the world today. First off, this is number one. Israel is the center of world history. I mean, every day in the headlines, you read something about the small state of Israel, small but not insignificant, and its prominence in world history shows the supernatural activity of God. Second, this is number two, Israel is the center of world controversy. I mean, all the governments of the world are divided over Israel and what Israel does and what's happening in Israel. And if it were not for the United States, the vast majority of them would have already done away with Israel as a nation. Israel and the Arab armies that surround her are a powder keg for this planet. Because in the final analysis, this is number three, Israel is the center of promised prophetic activity. So, if you want to know what time it is on God's calendar, look at Israel. The most important city to watch with regard to the second coming of Christ is Jerusalem. And Paul wants you to understand God's integrity is at stake in this. God cannot forfeit his covenant with Abraham without abandoning Adam's race. He has to abandon humanity if he gives up on Israel. And even Israel's current unbelief cannot be allowed to thwart God's faithfulness to his own promise. So what is God doing now? God is using Israel's unbelief in his purpose for eternity. Watch, Romans 11, verse 7. What then? Israel hath not obtained that which he seeketh, seeketh for, but the election hath obtained it. Like like me, Paul says. He was one of those. And the rest were blinded. According as it is written, God hath given them the spirit of slumber, eyes that they should not see, and ears that they should not hear, unto this day. And David saith, Let their table be made a snare, and a trap, and a stumbling block, and a recompense unto them. Let their eyes be darkened, that they may not see, and bow down their back alway. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall, that they should just be done away with, and never rise again? God forbid. But rather, through their fall... Salvation has come unto the Gentiles for to provoke them, to provoke Israel to jealousy. Now with the fall of them be the riches of the world, as it is now, through, through Christ and, and grace, and the diminishing of them, the riches of the Gentiles. How much more their fullness, which is yet to come. Because God will one day redeem this planet, and at that same moment, he restores Israel, his people, in order to prove that he keeps all his promises and prove he can save you today through his son, Jesus. So there are three broad proofs that the Bible's the word of God, and that the word of God is true. And that God will do exactly what he says he will do. And these are the three irrefutable evidences that we have a promise-keeping God. First off, notice if you will, there is the presence of a remnant of Hebrews. And we already read the section where Paul talks about that. But let me press pause on just one verse because this is the heart. This is the kernel of the gospel. Watch verse 6. Romans eleven six and if by grace, if salvation is by grace, then it is no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it's no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. 
I mean, is our salvation from sin done by us accepting God's grace, or is it done by us contributing human works, or is it both? The Roman Catholic Church and many mainline denominations say it's both, because you have to have grace mediated through ceremony, sacraments, and rituals, or boundary markers of the elect, like baptism when you were a baby. The Christian church, Disciples of Christ, says it's both. Grace has to be mediated through their baptism of you. I mean, I don't know why they're not called the Baptists. I mean, baptism isn't that big, that big a deal to us, but it is to them. So there are three kinds of Christianity in America. I don't know if you've ever noticed this or not. There's liturgical, Pentecostal, and evangelical. And liturgical Christian churches say... Grace is mediated through these sacraments that you have to take. Pentecostal churches say grace is mediated through an experience. You've got to be baptized in the Holy Ghost with the evidence of speaking in tongues, for example. But the thing that you will notice about an evangelical church like ours is that it's all about the evangel. It's all about the gospel. The pulpit is front and center in our sacred space. Because the Bible teaches what we believe, which is our first point for study, that God's grace is mediated to you through your faith in his word. So we believe what Jesus said, ye must be born again. And your salvation is a supernatural work of two seeds, the word of God and the Spirit of God coming together to conceive new life in your soul when you trust Jesus for eternal life. So Paul is reminding us all, God is faithful to his word. And his word on this is the key to our eternity. And the fact that he is faithful is seen in that even after Israel's rejection of Jesus, there's still a remnant of Jewish individuals who believe on him as their Messiah. We meet some of them every time we take a trip to Israel. And we go to church, go to their church with them sometimes. So Paul proves this from his own experience, verses 1 and 2. He proves it from Bible history with Elijah, verses 2 to 5. And the remnant of Jews who God is saving out of Israel in the present is a down payment on the completion of the promise to all of Israel in the future. So you better pay attention to this, because verse 12 says, our entire redemption by resurrection is tied to God's redemption of Israel. So second, the proof of God's promise keeping is seen, and this is number two, in the plan of redemptive history. In verse 7, Paul reminds us of how God was not caught by surprise by Israel's eventual unbelief and her idolatry and her rejection of the Messiah. So much so, he had actually already planned it as a mystery in his purpose for eternity. So God planned it in advance, but he didn't tell us until we got there. That's what a mystery is. It's when God tells you what he planned before, but he didn't let you know in advance because he's not going to prejudice your free will in the matter. So through their unbelief, we get to believe, and through our own belief, they get to be enticed 
to start believing again. You say, but Alan, how does that work exactly? You're asking good questions this morning. Look at verse 13. For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I'm the apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify my office. And, and he says, the reason I'm doing that is so that if by any means I may provoke to emulation them which are my flesh and might save some of them. For if the casting away of them be the reconciling of the world, what shall the receiving of them be but life from the dead? For if the first fruit be holy, the lump's holy. You know, if the root's holy, then the branches are going to be holy. And if some of the branches were broken off, now he goes into a metaphor, an illustration, saying, look, Jesus is the root of the olive tree. He's the good root. There are two types of trees, wild and, and natural ones. Okay, so Israel started off being part of this natural olive tree to bring forth fruit and bless the nations. But guess what? They, they tripped into unbelief, so God cut them off, and he grafted us Gentiles in. Because God can do that. He, he's free. If, certainly if anybody's free, God's free. He can graft us into that. And so look at what he says down in verse uh, uh, 23. And they also, if they abide not still in unbelief, the Jews who were first cut off shall be grafted back in. For God is able to graft them in again. For if thou wert cut out of the olive tree, verse 24, which is wild by nature, and wert grafted contrary to nature into a good olive tree, how much more shall these, which be the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? So God planned redemption of humanity in such a way that he uses the unbelief of Israel to start offering us Gentiles Israel's new covenant promises. I mean, we talk about the new covenant, the New Testament. Uh, Jeremiah lays that out, Jeremiah chapter 31, uh, 33. And, and you know what? None of that was for us. Those promises were to the houses of Israel and Judah. But God said, huh, tell you what, I'm going to cut you guys off for a while. These Gentiles over here who did not have that promise, I'm going to give them the benefits of what I said I was going to be giving you. Because, you know, I really love you. I'm going to try and get you back to me. So this is the age. This is the dispensation of grace where eternal life is now being dispensed based on your faith in Jesus. And so Isaiah tells us, Isaiah 53, verses 10 and 11. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him, bruise Jesus, the Messiah, at the hands of his brethren, the Jews. God hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, but watch, even then, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. Jesus on the cross will look down through the corridors of time, down through history. He'll see you. He'll see me. He'll see the day we got saved. He'll see this service right here where we're all gathered together on this Sunday and going through Romans chapter 11. And he will be satisfied. You know what? He's going to see something else that Romans 11 is going to tell us about. And by his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Paul wants us to understand what God is doing, so he takes us to what God is saying. And he uses the olive tree as an illustration. And Israel's unbelief caused her to be cut off as a branch, 
but then God grafted us Gentiles who are believers in Jesus into those new covenant promises she had been cut out of. And the amazing thing is, God did not make this change without warning his people in advance. Okay, look at this next passage. Paul says, but I say, did not Israel know? First Moses saith, I will provoke you to jealousy by them that are no people. By a foolish nation, I will anger you. But Isaiah is very bold and saith, I was found of them that sought me not. I was made manifest unto them that asked not after me. So Acts chapter 10 shows the dawning of the age of the Gentiles, not of Aquarius. Okay, you should have stopped smoking that dope a long time ago. Saw somebody today was wearing a hoodie, said Jesus is dope. So don't smoke dope, Jesus is dope. Um, but okay, it's, it's the dawning of the age of the Gentiles. And that dawn was when the apostle Peter gave Cornelius, a Gentile, the gospel. And he got saved so much so that God made it clear visibly and audibly that Cornelius had received the Holy Ghost just like Peter had. And so now the night of the church age is far spent. The day star return of Christ is close at hand. And God used Jewish unbelief to bring the gospel good news of eternal life by believing in Jesus to those of us who are Gentiles. And after that, God said to the angels, hold my root beer. And now he's going even further. He is provoking the people he gave the promises to that he had originally cut off to be jealous and return to him so he can graft him back in. So not only does the presence of a believing remnant prove the Bible is the word of God and that God is alive and well and able to keep his promises, not only does the plan of redemption prove that, but now third, and this is number three, it is proven by God's promise of restoring humanity. That's in verses, if you look back, Romans 11, verses 25 to 32. For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits. Okay, now this, here's what the shame is. This is a shame. Because so many wings of contemporary American evangelicaldom are ignorant of the very thing that Paul is talking about here. Willingly ignorant, I think. That's all the Reformed churches, that's all the Calvinists. They're willingly ignorant of what Paul is sharing with us here. Wise in their own conceits, believing and saying, spouting out of their mouth, replacement theology, that somehow the church has totally replaced Israel and God is never going back to it. We've totally replaced them. No, Paul says, blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. But after that, verse 26, and so all Israel shall be saved, not blindly, not arbitrarily, but as it is written, there shall come out of Sion the deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob, for this is my covenant unto them, when I shall take away their sins. As concerning the gospel, their enemies for your sakes, but as touching the election, their beloved for the father's sakes, the patriarchs, Abraham, David, who the promises went to, For the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. For as ye in times past have not believed God, yet have now obtained mercy through their unbelief, even so have these also now not believed that through your mercy 
they also may obtain mercy. For God hath concluded them all in unbelief that he might have mercy upon all. So to really understand how and when this will happen, you need a full panorama of of Bible prophecy so you can get the whole context. So let me quickly, just quickly tick off every major event on God's prophetic calendar because this is really how God restores humanity for eternity. First, letter A, the body of Christ, the church, will be raptured, removed from this planet. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13, Paul says, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, those who died in Jesus, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them which also sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent or precede them which are asleep, who already died. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, not all the way to the earth, but into the atmosphere. And the the dead in Christ shall rise first. We don't precede them. We don't prevent them. They go up there first. And then, verse 17, we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Now, you see those words in verse 17, caught up. You need to underline those two words because that is the Latin term rapture. And some people are so fooled that they say, well, you know, the rapture isn't even mentioned in the Bible. Well, I just showed it to you right there. We are raptured together to be with the Lord after those who have already died in Jesus precede us by being resurrected and present with the Lord first. That is another mystery about God's purpose for eternity because it was never revealed in the Old Testament until Paul received it by revelation. So learn what God is doing based on what God is saying. Watch 1 Corinthians 15, verse 51. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible. We do not prevent or precede them. And then watch, we shall be changed. Because at that same moment of their resurrection, a rapture takes place. For this corruptible must put on incorruption. And this mortal must put on immortality. So this event, whenever it's talked about in the New Testament, is always portrayed as being imminent. And that means able to take place any moment. There are certain signs for the second coming. There are no signs we are waiting on for the rapture. There are just no signs we're waiting on for the rapture. So how is God going to restore humanity for eternity? Well, this is letter B. As the chosen people, Israel, suffered through a seven-year period of tribulation. And we took 12 Sundays, um, October of 2020 to July of this last year, 
to go through the entire book of Revelation and see that because there are four pictures of the second coming in the book of Revelation, just like there are four pictures of the first coming in the four Gospels. And so each one of those pictures walks you through different aspects of that time of tribulation, the activities of the Antichrist, the false prophet, what that old red dragon is going to do to try and destroy the Jews. And yet, look at verse 26, Romans 11. And so all Israel shall be saved, as it is written, there shall come out of Sion the deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness. Unless you think by saying all Israel that what God means is, well, you know, the Jews and the Gentiles. Oh, I mean, all you have to do is read a, read a verse word by word, turn away ungodliness from Jacob. I mean, sometimes the church is called a new Israel. We're never called Jacob. And, and so all the pro-Palestinian, all the anti-Semitic preachers in evangelicaldom who deny this very thing are teaching doctrines of devils. They deny the mystery, Paul affirms to us right here. And yes, it was hidden in the Old Testament, but is now revealed by the word of the Lord in Scripture. If you look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, it is revealed how that, verse 7, the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Okay, so it's, you can, we can see signs that are already active, but he who now letteth, and the word in this context means hinders, prevents it, will hinder or prevent it until he be taken out of the way. And then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord sh shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming, even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders. So he's talking about the Antichrist. And with all this, but what will he do when he is allowed? And, I mean, until Jesus comes back and, and, and takes care of him. Well, with all deceivableness of unrighteousness, he'll work in them that perish because, not, not because they're reprobated to hell, not because of some idea of predestination. They, it will be because they received not the love of the truth that they might be saved. So... It's not unconditional election. It's kind of based on believing the truth. I mean, it's not irresistible grace. I mean, you can resist it by not believing the truth. And therefore, verse 11, for this cause, God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they might, all might be damned who believe not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. That's kind of a mixed bag in terms of things that are on God's calendar, you think? I mean, on the one hand, you got the rapture, resurrection, incorruption, immortality. And then on the other hand, you know, you got people who hear the truth today, maybe in this service, and yet they reject it. With their unfettered free will, they reject it. And they are condemned to believe the lie of the Antichrist when he finally arrives. That must not be you. I mean, that must not be you. Do not let that be your eternal fate. Because in the final analysis, God is going to restore humanity for eternity. And this is letter C. As Jesus Christ, God's Son, and Israel's Messiah returns to earth as King of kings and Lord of lords. Another passage, uh, Revelation chapter 19, talks about how after that point, when we come, when he does come back to the earth, not just to the air, and we come back with him, he shall reign forever and ever.
Jesus and we are the final victors at the battle of mother of all battles, the battle of Armageddon. He will capture the Antichrist. He'll destroy his armies. He'll establish a kingdom of heaven on earth. And it will usher in a thousand-year millennium of peace and prosperity and tranquility. And it will fulfill all the promises given to David, given to Abraham those thousands of years ago. You know, God's already blessed us through the Bible because it's his word. So the university where you study, the democracy you live in, the Supreme Court, the system of justice and law that it represents, the English language that we speak, the public library in our city, the medical system we depend on, the farms that bring us food, all those things came to America because someone took the Bible seriously. And they all flow to other countries still today because... Some missionaries take the Bible seriously. Do you? Do you take the Bible seriously? See, the Renaissance did not begin with a revival of learning. It began with an arrival of the Greek New Testament from the East, its publication on Gutenberg's press, so that it could be translated into all the languages of the West. That is what ended the Dark Ages. Common men and women were given a Bible in their common tongue. So our freedom is not a result of Washington's revolutionary struggle. It is in reality a fruit of the Bible. Because without the Bible, our founding fathers would not have been any better than any other nation's founding fathers. They would not even know the meaning of freedom and justice. And yet these promises of God, they've been scoffed at by skeptics for centuries. You know, in their mind, Israel was not and did not and could not become a sovereign nation again, speaking their own original language. So this next slide kind of explains to you the times of the Gentiles. Even though the fullness of the Gentiles is not yet come into the body of Christ, the times of the Gentiles has already ended. The times in which the Gentiles were trotting underfoot Jerusalem, that's already ended. That tells you how close we are. In in 607 BC, Nebuchadnezzar erased their national identity, and 19 years later in 588, he destroyed their capital city. But wait, in 1948, Israel won a war of independence against five combined Arab armies and became a nation recognized by President Harry Truman, even against the advice of his own State Department. And 19 years later, in 1967, Israel regained and reunited her capital city, Jerusalem. So I don't know what you believe, but Romans 11 definitely proves how God has shut the mouths of the skeptics because prophecies once thought impossible have come to pass, just as described in the Bible and continue to unfold right before our eyes. It is obvious we are in the end times. So three final things, and then we race up out of here. Not rapture, but but I will dismiss you. What do we learn from the remnant and the redeemed? Number one, since God keeps all his promises, you can trust him too. You can trust Jesus today for eternal life and know that you actually have it. 
Number two, God will perform everything he's promised for eternity with or without you. But he wants to do it with you. And all you have to do is pray and say, God, save me for Jesus' sake. Jesus, I see what you did. It's, it's you, it's not me. In dying for my sins so that my sins could be atoned for. So today I believe in Jesus for what he promises me, eternal life. God, give me your righteousness through my faith in Jesus. Today I believe Pray that right now, and God will put you in Christ. He will put the Holy Spirit in you. And all you have to do is pray and ask him to save you today. Number three, in the meantime, God works everything for your good. I mean, if you pray today and trust Jesus, look what happens, Romans 8, 28. And we know that all things, even bad things, work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Verse 31, what shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? Well, obviously the devil can, but no one can be against you successfully. He that spared not his own son. Watch, here's what salvation is. Delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Will you pray... And claim that promise today and trust him. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Before I close this out in prayer, I just want to say, you know, if you do pray, and you know what, the only thing you have to do to get saved is believe on Jesus. You know, and I don't think you have to add a whole lot to that. Gospel of John is pretty clear. And it was the last one that was written, and it was written after even most of Paul's epistles, all of Paul's epistles. And it's just pretty clear, you know, you just have to believe on Jesus for eternal life. So believe on Jesus for what? For eternal life. Why? How can I do that? Well, because, you know, there is the cross. Jesus died on the cross for your sins. But really, all you have to do is believe And if you pray, and if you do that today, then come up after we get done with this final song. Come up and let us know. I want to give you a copy of my book, Next Steps for New Believers, the next steps that you ought to take. Go ahead and stand, and let's get ready to let the praise team sing us out. Next Sunday, we're going to see what it means And we're going to see exactly how to be filled with the Holy Spirit. This is life to you. Invite somebody to come with you so that they do not miss out. Praise team, sing us out.